Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, you guys aren't sitting next to each other? No, I'm, no I'm he's driving. The uh, there's, yeah. there's, separate, uh, there's separate rooms. Hey, Izzy, I'm going to sign you on that, okay? All right. It's pretty funky here. We could fit like six people or something. We should have Izzy. Hi. Izzy! Hello. How excited are you for this? Cardiff <laughs> <laughs> is very enthusiastic. How can you tell? Everybody's <laughs> like, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I worried at one point about uh, about people getting confused with all of us on here, wondering who we are because there's five of us. But then I remembered how incredibly and dramatically different all of our <laughs> accents are. I don't think anybody's going to have trouble distinguishing me from David or Izzy from Lisa. Let's do this. David, start the music. listening to Alpha Chat, the infrequently and irregularly updated podcast hosted by the team of FT Alphaville. Today we'll be talking about currency wars, the monetization of debt, mobile payments, the sovereign debt trial of the century, a Dutch bank whose name I can't pronounce, immigration in the U.S., and who knows what else. And if you didn't come to this podcast from the blog and you want a time guide so you can jump straight to the topic you want, we're going to post one at ft.com forward slash Alphaville. But first, let's do introductions. Today's Thursday, February 14th. I'm Cardiff Garcia in New York, and we've got Lisa Pollock and David Keohan in our London studio. Hey, guys. Hello, sir. Hello. And via phone in Geneva, Izzy Kaminska. Izzy, happy Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah. Happy Valentine's Day, Izzy. All right, guys. So we've got a full lineup for this show. We're going to try to keep it to an hour, but uh, I think as anybody who who reads Alphaville knows, we're not really into the brevity thing. So... (laughs) I guess we should get right into it. Uh, David, you're up first. Currency wars, the yen, G20, All right. what's happening this week? What yeah, do we it's need a, to know? Well, we're, G20 is starting tomorrow, right? Uh, had the G7, had a lot of confusion. Uh, G20 is almost certainly going to do the same thing, something probably about we won't competitively devalue, but domestic objectives, so forth. Um, it leaves everything incredibly open and doesn't really help, uh, I'd say. The big thing is currency wars as a meme doesn't help at all. It's a slightly ridiculous phrase for something that always goes on. We've tried currency handbags and we're currency shrapnel and we're opening, <laughs> open to just about any other phrase you guys want to throw in here. Yeah, um, I think this was started by a, a colorful Brazilian finance minister named Guido Montega a couple of years ago. Yeah, he's got some flair. Uh, yeah, to say the least. So earlier this week, uh, you mentioned some confusion uh, a lot of this has to do with Japan and the yen. You want to talk about that angle for a minute? I mean, what what exactly is going on? Sure. I mean, currency wars seems to be driven by the yen, Japan, Abenomics, uh, new prime minister, comes in, says he wants to get rid of deflation and kind of inject some impetus into the Japanese economy, which uh, you got to say seems fair enough. These guys have been struggling for so long. It's incredible. And uh, I really want to ask, and I don't understand what everyone thinks the Japanese are doing so wrong. I mean, it's monetary stimulus, a bit of fiscal stimulus, and an inflation target. Where's the complaint here? Where's the war? Where's the anything bar the usual? The big thing is that currency wars are actually a good thing. It's a stimulus. It's liquidity being pushed out. And it's going to have all sorts of benefits everywhere else. As long as you don't get into a trade war, we should be okay. Sure. I mean, I was, I was also kind of interested by the fact that when the Bank of Japan allow, announced its new 2% target, a few weeks ago, it was actually kind of weak sauce, wasn't it? I mean, this wasn't this wasn't quite as aggressive as everybody thought it would be. It was it went from an implicit, I think, one percent goal, which it hadn't hit anyways, to a two percent target. But then it, it sort of left it open ended in terms of how long it would take to actually reach it. So it, sure. I mean, the, the fact that people are still worried about it is, is, I guess, somewhat surprising. But it's also led to estimates of where 
the yen is going to end up all over the place. Well, 200, right? 300. I mean, it doesn't really matter. People are just throwing figures out there. Um, so, uh, yeah, weak sauce, still comparatively weak sauce. And uh, can't really see that changing until the governor changes. You know, he's stepping down early now. You're going to have an interesting BOJ meeting in April. Um, and maybe the market's pricing in really aggressive abenomics. Maybe this is the start of the trend. I don't know. But as it stands, I think Japan's getting kind of roughly treated. And the one yeah, thing let me ask you something, though, because you, you had an interesting post, I think, yesterday or the day before, talking about how it might not be just abenomics. It might also be dragonomics. Yeah, I mean, so talk, talk about that and how actually this might be something driven by what's happening in Europe rather than just... Well, actually, we're also lifting the veil on the Alphaville creative process here because I haven't actually published that yet. But, you know, <laughs> the back end exists for a reason. And uh, I was actually trying to work the word, trying to work like draggy flirting into a header for Valentine's Day, but didn't get there. So anyway, okay. um, yeah. So, I mean, one of the weird things about Japan has been that it's been driven or the weakness in the end has been driven by foreign investors. But I'm um, being told by a few people recently that domestic investors, are, Japanese domestic investors are starting to push towards Europe, particularly peripheral Europe, because you've got this big cash pile looking for yield. Um, I talked to Izzy a bit about this recently as well. I mean, she has a little bit of a theory about repo. I don't know if she wants to have a quick chat about that. But uh, Yeah, I mean, what was interesting, which I don't think many people have really um, thought about, is that over the last year, two years really, there's been a huge increase in yen-denominated collateral in, in circulation in Europe. And it kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, I think it was... Uh, I have to double-check the dates, but I think it was around 2011 that we suddenly saw this huge spike in yen-denominated um, collateral. Um, and it started to peter out. We, we have to wait for the, for the latest survey to see what kind of condition those uh, volumes are at at the moment. But it does seem to be very intriguing. And also, it kind of coincided with the tsunami, um, which possibly created an opportunity to lock in a very good euro-yen swap rate. So I, I, I'm still trying to figure out how it all works, but certainly it was a, a sizable flow, and um, you know, collateral always plays a part somewhere. So it, it will be interesting to see if we can kind of figure out what's going on on that front. Yeah, some of my some of my favorite work from Alphaville for the last two years has been Izzy's writing about how you can understand almost anything in the world as a repo or repo-like transaction. <laughs> it's like the grand unified theory of finance. But, all right, guys, uh, let's go to our next topic, which is actually uh, a reader request. So commenters Poached Wonk and Triple B Plus uh, have asked us to talk about helicopter money, the monetization of government debt. Izzy, stay where you are, because um, I want to ask you about this. So, Actually, can I jump in on that very quickly, just just very yeah. quickly? One of the ideas, yeah, one of the things that strikes me about the Japanese situation in the yen, again, is that a lot of the complaints coming out of Europe, say from central bankers, might be more about the preservation of central bank independence and a fear of what's happening to the Japanese central bank than any real fear about currency wars. Uh, I think that might just tie into this topic a bit. Yeah, oh, yeah, and it, and it definitely does. To summarize quickly, Martin Wolf and John Kay had, like, dueling columns uh, in the FT yesterday, and Martin is in favor of explicit coordination between the treasuries and central banks of developed economies because to this point they focused on pushing up private spending through the kind of normal credit channels, and it hasn't been enough. So he says there's a strong case for debt monetization, which essentially means the central bank agreeing to finance fiscal policy and thereby pushing up public spending by financing things like infrastructure building, tax cuts, whatever. John Case is a little bit skeptical of the idea, but Izzy, I, I want to turn to you because you've written a lot about central bank independence. So you want to you give us your thoughts on this? Um, I mean, I'm actually with Martin. I think his his column was, you know, absolutely on the money. Um, the problem is that all the QE we've had hasn't really stimulated broader money measures. So all that fear about inflation is kind of, well, it's without any substance because we, we, we're having increase in base money, but not broad money. And that's where the lending happens. So Martin's basically saying we need to just, um, get to the helicopter and start dropping. And um, and that's kind of, interestingly enough, I never knew this, but when I was at the uh, Central Bank Conference um, last week in Copenhagen, um, that's actually what the Japanese did 
in the in the immediate aftermath of the first crisis. They actually did do totally unsterilized helicopter drops, only for a brief time. But you see, it the is first in the crisis. Toolkit. You mean in the in the nineties? Yeah, yeah. And so it is. It is. Um, it is in their toolkit, and they have done it before. But obviously, there are inflationary implications potentially. But I think Martin is arguing basically that. We've tried everything else, and, and why not? Why not do the direct financing option? And in a way, it's no different to just doing a jubilee, because whether you debase via inflation and, and helicopter drops, it's all, it's all kind of relative at the end of the day. Yeah, you're, um, you're talking about a, a, debt, a debt jubilee, in other words, some way yeah, of, I mean, of whether uh, either you inflating just, away just or getting Right off that debt. debt, or you write it off implicitly by doing helicopter drops, it's the same thing. You're effectively, you know, a helicopter drop is the same as a jubilee. It's just more, more uh, subtle. Yeah, you want to talk about the institutional aspect to this? Because I think a lot of people have, have long held to the idea that central banks need to be free from political interference, um, that just in case the fiscal policymakers get it wrong, you want a strong, independent central bank. And I think in some of your writing and based on some of what you came across in that conference in Copenhagen and before, you said that, well, those lines are being blurred anyway. You want to elaborate a little bit well, on that? Well, you know, it's, it's actually me and David wrote about it with, with, with regards to the uh, Oh, the, the writers of the, the QE UK. surplus. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the argument really is that when you look at a central bank, you know, very, very simplistically, it is and always will be an agent of the state. We can pretend that it has independence, and we can give it an arm's length sort of, you know, mandate and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, central bank exists because the government and the people allow it to exist, whether it exists in independent form or as an agent of the government. It is married to the government. It represents the government's interests always. Now, there are times when independence is really suitable. That's usually in an inflationary environment where the impetus uh, from the government perspective is, in, you know, it, they're very, uh, they've got a good, uh, you know, they have more reason than ever to try and, in, you know, print their ways in Barbway style out of problems. Um, that's when you need independence. But in the current condition, actually, it's the opposite. You need more cooperation, you need more interaction, and actually an independent central bank potentially starts to impede on the process. It's not even impeding. It just there's only so much it can do. It has to start collaborating with the government. It's contextual again. By the way, Izzy, you might have uh, Skype on in the background. Just a technical note oh, from sorry, the studio. Can you hear it? <laughs> David, by the way, is, is doubling as our sound engineer for this podcast. Yeah, all tech complaints can be directed to me. Our third topic, Izzy, stick around again. You're doing a lot of the heavy lifting uh, early in this podcast, um, but I know you're super excited about this, um, and so is Lisa. So the topic is mobile payments. Um, I think you guys have been curious about this for a while, the rise of mobile payments, what it could mean for the economy and maybe for monetary policy in the future. Um, what's going on here? Um, well, I've come at it from – I've always liked the idea of mobile payments and, and new virtual currencies. I found it quite interesting. But I was at a conference again last week, the Lyft conference in Geneva, and I happened to uh, meet a guy uh, called um, – now, <laughs> it's a French name, so I don't want to mess it up. Um, he's Jean-Francois Gross, and he is uh, the CEO of a company called Mobino. Hasn't started operating yet. It's still sort of in the startup um, area, but he's trying to do very interesting things in this area. And what I really liked about what he was saying is that um, he's not really trying to compete with the current system, as many of these mobile p uh, payment platforms are. And he wants to complement what's going on. And he's doing he's, – He's basically coming at it from from a point from from a perspective where he's outing the problems of the current options that we have on the market. So things like PayPal, things like Bitcoin, and things like um, M-Pesa in Kenya, which is possibly the most uh, amazing example of a of a of a mobile payment system with a real critical mass at the moment. So he, of course, he has an interest in in criticizing other other you know offerings in the market but what he's saying is basically that you don't 
what we don't realize when we look at M-Pesa and PayPal is that what these companies effectively do is they're privatizing the money issuance process. And they are kind of creating something that is supposed to be base money, so M0, um, as you know, monetary people would look at it. Um, but it's not M0, it's M1, because it's still a deposit. And every time you get PayPal units or virtual money of any sort, you're actually doing a swap, and you're presenting the company in question with um, your, your own uh, currency, which they keep as deposits. So that, that money stays, and if it's in a positive-yielding environment, the company in question gets all that um, money for itself. You have not only a zero-yielding kind of cash currency, but one that very often is negative-yielding because there are transaction costs associated with using their currencies. And that's all very well and good in a private sort of alternative currency system. But what people don't realize is that government effectively starts losing control of the money supply. And you've got intermediaries like Vodafone and, you know, PayPal or whoever, who are increasingly um, kind of like absorbing a lot of the seniorage for themselves. It's not so bad in the West, but in, in developing countries where um, there's a lot more cash in the economy than there is, like in Kenya, like deposits, you know, many people do not have bank accounts. Um, that can be quite a significant amount of money that the government loses. So, so what's, the, what's the significance of that for, like, the rest of the world and the future of money? Well, it's about how we go forward. We can either go forward with, like, completely anarchic, you know, alternative parallel system currencies like Bitcoin, which you know, have no you know, central authority regulating their supply. It's a pure endogenous system, like the amount of Bitcoin satisfies demand at all times, right? Or we can go uh, towards a system that actually helps governments uh, retain a bit of power. And so what he's actually advocating is that governments should just start issuing digital currency directly. That ties into what Martin Wolf's been talking about as well, because if they had the capability to directly issue digital currency to people's mobile phones, you can kind of like completely um, jump over the banks um, if you need to dish out money anyway. And it gives you amazing data, amazing power, and real real-time statistics on how that money is being spent. So rather than going through Vodafone or whoever, just, you know, let the governments themselves start issuing digital cash and forget about cash banknotes and all that sort of stuff. The seniorage is then, you know, the value that is given to the digital currency minus the cost of holding all the infrastructure and the servers associated with, with managing all that data. Yeah, I mean, what you just said about, about private money, I mean, essentially reminds me of what, not, not that I was there, but reminds me of what we had in the U.S. Um, for the better part of the 19th century or for the better part of the first century of the United States' existence. I mean, it was money issued by private banks, essentially. Money didn't become nationalized or federalized or whatever you want to call it um, until later in the century. Uh, and we certainly had many more bank runs back then. Right, exactly. So you had this kind of completely, you know, free market uh, approach to money, which is, as from what I understand, that's kind of what Austrian sort of political, uh, you know, factions in the U.S. are still advocating to this day. They want, you know, the, what was it, Cardiff, one of those strange liberty coins or something. <laughs> I can't remember. But um, that's what they're advocating. and that, But that's actually not part of, you know, legal tender. I mean, legal tender is government-sanctioned tender. And we, if we start kind of jumping, um, you know, outside of that system, that's all very good when it works. But when it doesn't work, the whole, you know, the whole reason why we have central banks is because there is, they can intervene when needed. So is there is there enthusiasm on the part of some governments for for mobile money yet? I mean, has anybody started? I think, I think there is. It? I mean, the impression I was getting was that he was talking to a lot of, um, especially central banks in, in the developing world, in, in emerging markets, and especially in countries like, I mean, you can really imagine it working very well in countries like, I mean, it'll sound controversial, but it's true, in countries like Iran, where they're having terrible problems, obviously, at the moment with 
um, you know, the black market dollar. Um, well, it's increased valuation. control and no infrastructure necessary. I mean, or less infrastructure necessary. It's well, smart. If you, if you control, you know, the digital currency and you issue it, you have you have more power over over the valuation and over the, you know, in in places like Iran, you can in a way dictate that all payments have to be done in the digital currency and you hope that the velocity and the and the and the ease with which those payments can be done is much easier to do it via mobile than it is you know carrying around loads of dollars that would be the thing that would uh, you know settle 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 the market and encourage people to kind of actually abide by what the government wants rather than the black market sort of valuation there, there are surely some incredibly excited uh, hackers or paper counterfeiters thinking that they have to go to code school like now. <laughs> <laughs> right, because it's all about security. Yeah. Um, and and the coding, you know, your, your mobile effectively becomes your wallet. And, um, I mean, the, the, the guy I was talking to, the head of Mobino, I mean, he doesn't really see it as a store of value completely. You have to think of it as cash. You still have your deposits on in the bank and that those stand as they are but when when you want to take cash rather than taking it out on your um you know paper form and having a, a wallet full of lots of notes you're just holding that cash that zero yielding cash on your mobile but not in a way that you are um actually paying a negative yield which is what happens with many of the other systems that we have at the moment because for, when it's a commercial venture someone has to make the money somewhere right Mm. Izzy, that's uh, that's fascinating stuff. We've got to move on to the next topic, but for our listeners, uh, Izzy is planning to do some writing on this in the near future, I believe. Yep. Okay, so you know, keep coming back to the blog, uh, which hopefully you're doing anyways. Uh, but let's <laughs> was that turn our first again... plug for the blog? <laughs> yeah. Let's turn again to another commenter question. Commenter, do not feed the bear. That's the commenter's name. It's not like a sudden burst of Tourette's or anything. Uh, asks for background and the latest update in the Pari Pasu saga, and I think for this one we're going to have to bring in a ringer. That ringer is going to be Joseph Cotterell, my Alphaville teammate in New York. Now, unfortunately, the radio booth here is roughly the size of a shoebox. That's an insult to shoeboxes everywhere. So I actually have to leave the studio and switch places with Joseph, but Joseph's been writing about the sovereign debt trial of the century for a while. We don't have time for a full recap but he's going to summarize it and tell you why it matters. So, Joseph, get in here. Quick switch. <laughs> and five seconds. Sound effects work, though. I mean, that was a good creaky door. That was and a good ten door, seconds. Let's see how fast they can go. <laughs> it's a very constrained place, though. Fifteen I mean, seconds. Yeah. Lads, this is bad. Next time we're going to have to speed this up. Twenty. <laughs> we're going to make a sport of this, people. Hello there. Oh, he's ah, there. What, what, what was the clock? Right, 25? I think about 27 seconds. From the uh, radio booth. The uh, sweat box. Taking control. And that's actually kind of a good metaphor for the <laughs> Paribasu saga. What a professional. Uh, it's about Argentina, and Argentina is always good for like a fun, wacky story in the sovereign debt market. But this one's especially wacky because it's about the holdout creditors, you know, like the vulture funds, the people who kind of sue governments when they kind of default on their debt. And Argentina is losing. And in about two weeks uh, from now, it's going to have like a big hearing at the kind of appeals court here in New York to try and kind of stop holdouts from essentially forbidding it from paying the rest of its sovereign debt unless it kind of pays LEM as well. And they only want like a billion dollars or something. It's kind of absolute chump change. Uh, but the other kind of restructured holders of Argentina's debt, the people who kind of took its debt exchange like a decade or five years ago, in some cases, they're, they're really, really mad. They are kind of absolutely crazy that this is uh, happening. Why is it being fought out in New York again? Because it's... Uh, the debt is under New York law, which you might think is kind of weird, but is normal for emerging market sovereign debt, especially kind of Latin America issuers like Argentina and whoever else, really. Is that just demanded by anyone investing? or? It's 
Well, this case is kind of why you want your debt issued under New York law, because you can then go to a New York court <laughs> if uh, one of these governments kind of, you know, kind of stiffs you. Uh, you can you don't have to go to one of their own courts because they'll be you know bent corrupt they won't give you the judgment you or the kind of the fair trial you want and then you'll go to New York. Uh, but now, funnily enough, Argentina is arguing at the moment that this will actually be really bad for the reputation of New York as like a financial center. Oh, nice reversal. Uh, because it's yeah because it's kind of giving holdouts what they want and it's being really unfair to the other kind of bondholders who are you know all based in New York as well. Uh, these are some of the, like, the biggest kind of emerging market funds out there, like Gramercy and a few others, which I won't name. So that's kind of a really fun part of the story and what people should kind of be following in two weeks. And you also have kind of actors like Bank of New York, which is like, you know, the, one of the biggest global custodian banks. And it's also in the very sorry position of the bank which actually sends the money from Argentina to all of its bondholders. <laughs> it's and, an uncomfortable position. Yeah, and BNY is kind of worried that the holdouts are going to be able to kind of sue it in court for being effectively I can't do Argentina's it. kind of like aider and a better. So that's another thing to watch as well because that's, it's the metaphor I would use, it, it's kind of like, it's like a runaway bouncy castle kind of careening over like a children's kind of birthday party or something (laughs) an old folk home because it's like you know everyone knows argentina is nuts like the the holdouts are kind of you know some of the most kind of uh, mysterious characters in finance so it's you know very dramatic (laughs) but it's now kind of bleeding over into what used to be quite boring parts of finance like the custodian banks uh like the payment system which the holdouts may or may not be able to kind of seize or kind of uh, effectively freeze in order to kind of you know enforce their uh, claim against Argentina so that's the really fun part of the saga really and there, there was a boat at one point wasn't there yeah well you kind of have to remember this that the actual parapsu saga itself is it's kind of like Star Wars. It's just one episode <laughs> in the trilogy that kind of won't stop. Uh, and the holdouts are basically pursuing Argentina everywhere. It's, this isn't just like a New York court story. It, it, if you're a government, you'll, you'll have assets around the world. You'll have warships. You'll have the presidential plane. You'll have Sorry, is Argentina the empire in this metaphor? Uh, that's let's, a little I don't know bit if we want to go there. Uh, the, they probably think of themselves as the rebel alliance, actually. And the okay. holdouts are all evil and, you know, not very fair. Uh, but yes, there was a warship involved. It was parked in Ghana in Africa. Uh, and that was kind of, it came into it kind of quite tangentially because Argentina could say, well, look, holdouts have taken over one of our warships, guys. Uh, they, they're out of control. And this is exactly why you shouldn't uh, give them this judgment in the New York court. It kind of petered out in the end because eventually they got their warship back after they went to the, uh, this really big international maritime court. Uh, but there are, there's always stuff like that happening in this case, and I reckon this hearing in two weeks, I reckon it will probably go against Argentina, but I don't think it will be the end of the story, really. And so I'm very happy about that because I'll be writing about <laughs> it for kind of months and months to come, but you're just going to have to see what happens. And, and okay, if you want I'm to... I'm now going to turn oh, okay. control of the radio booth back over to Cardiff, if that's all right. We have 25 seconds to promo Joseph's yeah, series, Yes, right? yes, that's, that's what I was about to do. Yeah. So so as they are changing over, should you want to read any of Joseph's uh, Parry Passu saga, it is available in the menu, which is the second level of navigation on Alphaville. So you can go to www.ft.com forward slash Alphaville, and the Parry Passu saga will be available for you pretty much towards the top. Or Same. directly beneath this post. Yeah. yeah. Give or take. But directly beneath the big thing that says the blog. <laughs> yeah. I'm back, people. Hey, Carl. Hello. I don't know what Joseph said, but I'll bet he blew everybody's brains out. There, there were bouncy castles, and, and there was a, a warship in, in Ghana. Old folks home I, somewhere, too. I miss all and the, the rebel alliance. Stuff. I can't believe <laughs> well. it. Yes. Lisa, we're turning to you next. And I don't know if all of our readers know this, but Lisa is not just a credit derivatives expert. She also speaks fluent Dutch. And I'm pretty sure that other than FT Alphaville, you'd have to travel deep into the heart of the Netherlands to find someone else with that combination of talents. Um, so we're going to be talking about SNS 
Rael. I don't know how to pronounce it. Lisa, help me out. But this is the Dutch bank that was nationalized recently. It's subordinated bondholders had their bonds expropriated by the government, and it's had some controversial implications, uh, including for the functioning of CDS markets, the future of bailing in or writing off the subordinated debt of banks, and there was some suspense over whether ISDA would label this a credit event. Anyways, Lisa, you're all over this. You want to take over? Uh, sure. Um, first of all, I'm not fluent. Um, just a bit of a disclaimer. I'm somewhat conversational. Um, however, uh, what, what I wanted to do is I wanted to actually go back and explain a bit uh, about how this was a, a slow-motion train wreck, the nationalization of SNS. And and so I thought, you know, to, to demonstrate my knowledge uh, of Dutch, I am going to do most of the story in, a, in an authentic Dutch accent. Um, and there, there are going to be bits in here where I'm quoting, um, actually, from the finance minister's letter uh, when he was announcing the nationalization, which was on February 1st. And those I'm going to do in my normal voice. And, and the thing that I just need to warn you about my Dutch accent is I, I have no idea why this is, but I find it a lot easier to sound kind of like how, say, a middle-aged Dutch man sounds. Um, I think it's because it's more comical, so it's easier to mimic. Um, so it's, it's going to be a little bit weird. If it gets a little bit too weird, just, you know, stop me and we can just do the, the whole thing in, uh, in, in my normal sort of voice. This is going to be okay. good. You ready? Okay. This is, this is why I wanted to practice a bit more. But, you know, let's just go for it. Um, okay. So Esh and Esh uh, received $750 million of aid in 2008. Okay. So it hadn't paid that back already, or just 2013. So the government was still really involved with the group as was the Dutch National Bank, so the D Dutch Central Bank, which is the DNB, the regulator. Okay, so S&S had an underperforming real estate portfolio of some $8.55 and that's without any provisions. That constitutes a large amount of its total assets. So total assets were about $82 billion on the balance sheet. Now, in the summer of 2006, S&S Real took up a Bau Funds property finance from ABN AMRO. I think you say ABN AMRO? and renamed it to S&S Property Finance. Most of the portfolio, about 77%, is actually property in the Netherlands. So you might think this is like something from Spain or maybe it's from you know America, but actually it's not. A lot of it is the Netherlands. And a lot of it is also commercial property, but a lot of it is really underperforming. So maybe some of you think that S&S is small. Now, it is not small. It's the fourth largest bank in the Netherlands. It's the third largest life insurer. It's the fifth largest non-life insurance company in the country. Now, also, it has 6,700 employees. Now, if they were all in the Netherlands, this would be 0.04% of the population. I calculated it on Wikipedia. Okay, so now you understand that SNS is not small. And in 2008, it received some government support. And you should know that the government knew about the property portfolio, and they expected the bank to do something about it. Now, I read now from the letter of the finance minister announcing the nationalization a couple weeks ago. Uh, the, Dutch national, the Dutch Central Bank, in order to speed up the phasing out effort initiated by SNS Bank, requested the firm to draw up exit plans for the international real estate portfolio, showing how, when, and at what loss this portfolio could be phased out. In mid-2011, DNB repeated its request, that's the Dutch Central Bank, this time regarding the phasing out of the entire real estate portfolio. In 2011, DNB also asked SNS Real to formulate an action plan regarding the planned repayment of government aid and the vulnerabilities identified. A little bit later in the letter, when this proved inadequate, DNB requested an additional action plan. And then finally, in 2000, December 2011, when it became plausible that the problems could not be fully resolved through private means, DNB and the Ministry of Finance set up a joint project group to analyze the possible scenarios and options, private, public, and public, with regard to SNS Real, and to set up an emergency safety net should problems escalate and acute intervention would be required. Okay, now we go back to Dutch. Um, so, what happened was a slow motion drain wreck. The politicians obviously wanted to not involve taxpayer money, but actually the Dutch Central Bank was very concerned. We know this because of documents that RTL News, which is in the Netherlands, 
uh, got a hold of and they revealed. It was confidential, it was very interesting, but it's mostly in Dutch, so actually you cannot mostly read it unless you are also speaking Dutch. Okay, so the DNB was very uh, concerned um, that the longer the government waited to bail the bank out, the more expensive it would be. For a while, it looks like they could have a solution where the other Dutch banks help, and then it looked like maybe private equity funds could be involved, but in the end, it comes to nothing. Now, there were two looming events uh, and concerns by early 2013, so this year. One was that the Dutch National Bank had concerns about the viability of the bank in terms of the capital that they held, because they do this capital uh, calculation exercise. And another one is the pressure concerning the 2012 annual accounts. Okay, so the auditors of the accounts have to give the opinion that the company is a going concern. Otherwise, there are additional requirements for disclosure. And so the deadline for that, when they publish the annual accounts, is actually February 14th, which is today. So if today they had announced that they have these very big losses and it is not actually a viable entity, then there would have been this big uh, risico, this big risk uh, to financial stability in the Netherlands. And so the central bank uh, set a deadline, which was actually from the end of January. And when they didn't meet that, it was nationalized on uh, February uh, 1st. Um, so if they had gone insolvent, actually, um, then this triggers the Dutch deposit guarantee scheme. And the cost would have been have to be met by the other big banks. But maybe this burden causes them to get ratings downgraded, And so they have increased funding costs and so on. And so all of this would ultimately increase the potential burden on the Dutch taxpayer. Now, furthermore, and I quote uh, from the Dutch finance minister, who has this strange uh, American accent, um, moreover, recourse to the deposit insurance scheme would imply that over 1 million account holders would temporarily be prevented from using their payment accounts, which might put them in financial difficulty, possibly causing social unrest. So you might be asking about now, why didn't they bother to just sell S&S Bank? Well, there are some problems with this. So there's this question of double leverage, and there's also this thing about unit-linked insurance policies. I don't get into the details here, uh, but if you want to know more about these issues, you can see my post on Alphaville. We also put it uh, below the podcast. Uh, but basically, these things made it very hard to find a buyer. Uh, so the, the post, in case you are wondering what it's called, uh, is the Netherlands adds slow motion bank wrecks to list of things it's known for right after clogs and windmills, which is obviously a ridiculous title. Um, but <laughs> there you go. Uh, that's that's Alphaville. Uh, so, OK, uh, you probably want to talk uh, credit derivatives now. Now, I, I ask you, do you want to talk about this uh, with a Dutch accent or American accent? How, how are you guys doing? I th- I'm thinking it's I'm sounding about you. a bit Tony Soprano. <laughs> I'm having vague recollections to like an Austin Powers character. Oh, okay. I apologize right now to all the Dutch people. I am so sorry. But what otherwise, you guys, what you guys can't see is Lisa's doing a Dutch clap. face as well, which is fantastic. Okay. <laughs> I had no idea. Okay, oh, yeah, maybe, I should, maybe I should do this normal. Uh, I don't want to. I'm scared. I stress people out. Um, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about credit credit derivatives then. Um, so just a tiny bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up a bit to explain a little bit about CDS in case you're not following the stuff, which frankly is a good lifestyle decision. Um, so, so basically you have the debt of a bank and then you have derivatives that are written with reference to that debt. And if you're a buyer of protection using CDS, then you're protected against the default of that debt. But you have to pay. So if you're getting protection then you have to pay quarterly premiums to the person who sold you this CDS. Oh, this is just like Tony Soprano. Oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You've got to pay, yeah? Yeah, yeah. you have it at that. I don't, you see, I don't have TV, so I have no idea what this guy sounds like. <laughs> but I'll, We'll play it back I'll, to you I'll later. That. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, okay, so you have the CDS and you have some debt, and then you have to ask what happens if there's a default. So the, there's actually a difference in between what's considered a default for CDS and what's considered a default for the debt. And if you're the person who bought protection using the CDS, you really care about the the CDS default. And a lot of the times this is actually really straightforward. So if a company files for bankruptcy, then it's a default in the legal sense. They filed for bankruptcy and it's also a, a credit event, which is so a default in the credit derivative sense. Now it's, so it's important to realize that credit derivatives, they have their own rule book. And then you have, a committee of representatives, which is organized by this organization called ISDA, and that committee is comprised of people from banks and from buy-side firms, and they go and they read the rule book, 
And then they vote on this committee about whether a credit event has occurred based on those rules. And if they vote that it has occurred, then all the CDS people who bought the protection, they get a big payout. Now, sometimes... This is just like the mafia. I was going to say, I didn't want to... (laughs) (laughs) Hence, okay, I need to learn a Tony Soprano accent for for the next time I talk about CDS. Go Um, on. Okay, so sometimes, like in the case of SNS Bank, it's not actually that straightforward, so it's not as easy as, yes, it filed for bankruptcy, we all agree, fine. Um, So CDS written on Greece, for example, they they really weren't straightforward, and there was a lot of debate around that. Um, But in the end, it's decided in this case for SNS Bank that it was actually an event. Um, It was a credit event, all the CDS uh, should trigger. There's, There's another problem about that, but they decided it was an event. And the reason this is so important in the broad sense, even if this specific case isn't that important because not that many people actually had these contracts on SNS Bank. It's it's important because bailouts and bail-ins of debt are going to become potentially more common in the sense that legislation has now been very specifically written so that taxpayers aren't burdened as much as they are in the future. So it should be that bank debt holders bear more of the burden than taxpayers do in the future if a bank gets into trouble. So to SNS specifically, just to give you a little bit of the nerdy detail, um, so that the sub-debt holders basically woke up on February 1st and they found that they didn't own their bonds anymore. So this is everyone keeps saying expropriation. Is that a um, fancy word for taken away? Yeah, it's take, taken <laughs> away. Again, um, go on. <laughs> okay, so, so the bit of the rule book that I was talking about before that matters for this is this thing where it defines what counts as a restructuring, which is just one of the types of credit events. And so according to the definitions, restructuring means that with respect to one or more obligations and in relation to an aggregate amount of not less than the default requirement, any one or more of the following events occurs in a form that binds all holders of the obligation. And then a reduction in the amount of principal or premium payable at maturity or at scheduled redemption dates. And so the the thing that was really important with this is there's a little bit in there that I read out that says in a form where this happens. And so the, the, the debate was really kind of hinging in a way on what uh, the Dutch finance minister said when he announced the nationalization, um, which was that he basically said that he didn't think that they, uh, the sub-debt holders should get any compensation. And so... It looked like the it it looked like they were going to be completely wiped out, and so it looks like the reasoning uh, when they looked at the rule book was they said, okay, in a form that, but uh, people like me and also Bank of America, because they voted against this decision, um, thought that you actually have to change the terms of the bonds for this to actually trigger an event, and ISDA when they were dealing with the event around Greece did a Q and A explaining why it was or was not a restructuring credit event because there were a few attempts to get it to trigger and it didn't work and in in that q a they they specifically said a restructuring credit event requires an amendment to the terms of the bonds or loans and so if you went with that guidance it looks like sns was not going to be a credit event but if you go with the rule book where it says in a form then it is a credit event um so it, it is just this very strange sort of situation uh but there are the rest of the committee uh decided yeah, that at least it was I, have, an event. I have a question about the politics of this um because it seems like isda would have i guess an, an incentive to label it a credit event because if it wasn't then there might be problems or impairments in the market for cds but possibly also in the market for other European subordinated, you know, bank bonds, because the credit that gets written on it would be perceived to be less um, reliable, I guess. I mean, does that play a role or what what do you think about that? Well, so it's an interesting one because the committee, uh, they really should be following, they should be following the rule book. You know, like they, they make a lot of noises about sticking to what's in the rules, but there's nothing binding them to obey by those rules. And so there, there is a possibility that one could maybe get the idea that they, they wanted this to be a credit event for exactly that, the reasons that you mentioned for purposes of stability. And so, you know, maybe they decided to, to lean this way or that um, because it shows a certain amount of unity and it's better for the stability of the market. 
they they are in the process of uh, a rewrite so i think they're, they're going to come up with some additional rules that it was originally anticipated would be out in in april and this was for a lot of issues that were uh raised around what happened with greece as well but what the dutch did was quite unique that they just kind of woke up and went yes that subdebt is ours and there are other bits of bail-in legislation that allow for example for conversion to to equity and that that would also be problematic it would depend exactly how they did it uh whether it would be an issue and it would certainly cause an issue for the second stage of this process which is holding an auction where you determine actually what the amount of the payout should be and you need the defaulted instrument to have that auction and so if the right. defaulted instrument was equity it would make it really really hard and if the defaulted instrument the only person who holds it is the dutch government then that's also <laughs> really really hard because they yeah. don't tend to show up to credit auctions um of course they could uh, have a wild night and decide to turn up but it, it seems somewhat unlikely that they want to get down with that so it's and probably surely still a problem. equity doesn't default either i mean it's either going concern or not right Right. So the the thing with the equity and credit events is that if you imagine there, well, there are bits of bail-in legislation where you can take bondholders and say, oh, did you own bonds? Well, now you own equity. Ha ha. So the, so the bondholders end up, you know, being bailed in. So they end up financing it. And mm-hmm. you're just saying the way we're going to compensate you that we took your debt away is we'll give you some equity. So if it did actually uh, end up doing OK, then fine. Um, or the equity can just get converted and maybe the government holds some of it. You know, I, I need to refresh myself a little bit on bail and legislation. But the difficulty is that even if you easily decredit a credit event under the existing or new rules, when you actually have to have the auction to determine what the payout should be under the CDS, you can't use equity for that. You no, need that- debt. Well, it's interesting because from, from what I read in, in your post and in one of Joseph's posts on this, it, it's hard to feel sorry for the subordinated bondholders, um, but the Dutch government, I think in one of the letters it sent either this week or last week, said that it stopped that subordinated debt. It didn't go any higher up the capital structure because any higher up would have created financial instability. Yeah, yeah, and you really you really see that, like in some of the, the letters that are in um, Dutch, so already from the, the central bank in the Netherlands um, to the government, they wrote earlier that they were concerned. So like in 2012, they were already discussing this issue with the government um, yeah. ab- about that. And the thing that the, the CDS situation sort of demonstrates, which has kind of been an ongoing thing on, on Alphaville, is just that it, it's a very peculiar situation where you have um, derivatives that are written on an event that is very difficult to pin down. So debt can do all sorts of very complicated things, really complicated restructurings can happen, all sorts of, you know, the government can wake up when you can wake up one day and the government's taking your debt. There are all sorts of curveballs that occur. And so to try to think that you can write a standardized derivative on debt that can do all these strange, strange things, it to me has always just been very peculiar because as long as the, the music is going, it's it's fine and you can quite happily delude yourself. But as soon as the music stops and you have to acknowledge all these strange things that happen then the only way you can keep up is to keep rewriting the rule book. But if you have to keep rewriting the rule book, there's all this uncertainty in the market, and how can you yeah. be sure what it's really worth? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes well, sense. Well, thanks for that, Lisa. Uh, we got to move right along, and I don't say that just because the next topic is mine. But right before we do a lightning round of reader requests, I want to talk about immigration and the U.S. economy. What's happening now is that there is finally enough momentum For a fairly significant overhaul of of immigration uh, legislation, that hasn't happened in about 20 years. And right now, essentially what's on the table goes something like this. Defining a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million people who crossed crossed the border into the U.S. illegally, giving automatic green cards, those give you the right to live here and work here permanently, to all foreigners who graduate from American universities with either a master's degree or a Ph.D. in what are called STEM fields. STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. Obama wants to make it easier for entrepreneurs and people who invest a lot of money in American companies to also get green cards, although that was not in the Senate uh, proposal. Um, And anyways, there are also hints, vague hints, at the prospect of allowing in more temporary seasonal workers in some sectors. Agriculture is, I think, the most notable one. Anyways, all this is is attached to the kind of usual political spiel about enforcing 
uh, workplace rules around hiring foreigners when Americans are available and around securing the border. Uh, my own view on all this is, is that it's better than the status quo. It's better than what we have now. The pathway to citizenship generally is a good idea, and so is having more high-skilled STEM workers, though. I guess what I'd say is that I'm not a big fan of targeting any particular sector over another. I'd, I'd rather just have a very broad policy of liberalizing immigration, of allowing in more immigrants. Uh, and I also wish that employers would have some of their power taken away over their immigrant workers, because in a lot of cases, and in particular the, um, the H-1B, which is for high-skilled workers, it's tied to that immigrant's employment. So in a sense, it, it sets the stage, if not for abuse, then something a little bit more subtle. There's the understanding that if the immigrant loses his or her job, that, uh, that he or she will have to leave. So anyways, the, the most intriguing idea I've seen and, and why I've written about this a couple of times now uh, comes from a trio of immigration economists writing up a proposal for the Hamilton Project, which belongs to the Brookings Institution. And it's essentially for a cap-and-trade visa system for temporary workers where rather than arbitrarily assigning work visas on, on a first-come, first-served basis, the government would essentially offer employees, employers the chance to buy them at an auction and then trade them. And this is really important. Employees in this scheme would have the ability to move between employees. They could go to any employer that has the kind of visa that they require. And the other thing that's especially attractive about this, I think, is that the number, the cap of visas each year would fluctuate according to demand in the economy. So you'd have a system that both protects native-born workers because the cost of the auction would make hiring a foreigner just a little bit higher, um, but it also protects foreign workers because they would have the ability to shift across employers. Uh, and so it's a system that embraces market forces, and I think it's also more humane. I don't think there's a chance that this will be adopted by anybody, but I thought it was an intriguing idea, and to the extent that it, it you know, might push people along further in that direction, uh, I, think, I think it's worth having a look. Um, but Lisa, you were telling me something kind of, kind of interesting before, before we started the podcast. You want to you yeah. tell me that again? Um, so when, when I read Carter's post, uh, like I, as I told you, like my it's quite a uh, quite emotional for me uh just because I, I i'm in the uk under this thing called a, a tier one uh highly skilled migrant worker uh i guess there was a subcategory for blogger um but uh, i i initially applied a number number of years ago so i think it was three and a half four years ago now and i was i was in the u.s at the time so i i had been in the uk before but that was just for my studies and then i was in new york and i i wanted to come back and so there's this um at the time, there was this points-based system, and if you scored high enough on this points-based system, and you get uh, points a lot for being young, so it's not just about high education or your, your earnings or something. It's also about yeah, just being being younger. And so you um, you get on a tier one visa, and then if you have a tier one visa in the UK, then you can also do this thing where you move between employers. So I'm not uh, connected to to the FT, although I love Alphaville, so that's that's you know sufficient to tie well, me to tie me to my employer, an emotional tie. Um, but a lot of a lot of my friends and a lot of other people I know are, are on tier two visas, so that's where you are tied not only to your employer but also to your specific um, job. And tier one doesn't exist anymore, so they they got rid of it like two years ago, three years ago, um, as part of a policy of the the current government. Um, and so now it doesn't exist. Like I can keep extending mine because I, I got it like in time. Um, but first they, they made it tougher to get a tier one already when I was still in New York and, and then they just got rid of it. So yeah, the UK it is, has gotten it is more an important aggressive. Issue. Um, it's something where I, I guess I didn't emphasize it enough, but a lot of commenters uh, emphasize this uh, underneath a couple of my posts. Uh, but I think it's, it's an incredibly important issue and, and something that I think doesn't get addressed a lot when we talk about this because there's still, even now, when there are pro-immigration forces ascendant, even now uh, it doesn't get talked about a lot because there's, there's the need for strong rhetoric or aggressive rhetoric about you know, protecting American workers and things like that, even in, in, the, in the situation where I think, I think it can be very counterproductive. It's a subtle sell, isn't it? I mean, it's hard, it's hard to get a clean top line on it. It's very hard to get the politics of this right. In the U.S., it's immensely complicated. What I, what I just 
the spiel I just gave was was very simplistic, um, but it's something that that certainly I plan to write about a lot more in the coming months as this continues to be debated and, and we see what kind of a bill actually ends up uh, on the other side of the legislative process. But well, guys, we're almost out of time. We have just enough time for a lightning round of reader requests. So maybe three minutes each. Um, Stone Gun MBA asks if there is any evidence that the Eurozone recovery is underway. I think the answer is no. David, oh, what do you think? Y- yes, with a no. I mean, uh, it's financially sound and uh, economically still dodgy. So it depends if one can catch up with the other or one crashes. I mean, political risk everywhere, et cetera. So. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's y- important yes to distinguish. Maybe. I was going to say, I think it's important to distinguish between the financial stability angle, which obviously has gotten better since last summer, uh, and the actual eurozone economy, which I think it was we saw this morning, you know, contracted in the fourth quarter. But anyways, yeah, not looking great. Uh, commenter Leggy wants us to talk about the end of global QE and avoiding meltdowns, getting the patient off the morphine without filling the morgue. That's his quote or her quote. Uh, Izzy, you want to you want to take this one? Um, I don't know if I'm the right person, given that my my view is somewhat controversial because I just don't think we can get off the QE, and I think I personally think this is the new new state of of fi- of how the monetary system is going to you know keep going. I mean, I I think that we are in a in a new monetary economy where where essentially the government via the central bank or directly is going to have to keep compensating everybody by dishing out uh, money um, that isn't necessarily earned. And that's because we, as people, don't need to work anymore. There isn't any way we can circulate the money in any other way. Uh, Izzy, by the way, having a controversial view makes you the perfect person to ask about mm-hmm. stuff like this. <laughs> No, but I appreciate that everybody is focused on trying to, like, you know, figure out how we're going to get off QE, how we're going to get QE. But I think the the fundamental truth is that nobody, you know, it's, it's the elephant in the room that nobody wants to recognize is that this is all a process of very kind of market-driven nationalization. QE is de facto nationalization of everything, of markets, of, of infrastructure. You know, Tracy Alloway wrote a great book great piece the other day about how um, bankers are trying to make sunshine into bonds, you know, and then imagine the next step is, you know, the the central bank buying those bonds, and and that's how you then direct spending into solar and renewable, and eventually you get state-sponsored everything just because you can have the government target, you know, spending either through asset purchases or or the other way around, through uh, spending the old government, you know, government spending traditional way. Yeah, yeah. My own views on on this, as in many things, are I guess more agnostic or just completely kind of up in the air right now. Um, but in terms of of the mechanics of what Leggy's talking about, I'm I'm not so worried about the Fed specifically unwinding what it's done in the last few years. And I I might be completely wrong, but I actually think the tools that it has to use reverse repos, um, interest and excess reserves, I I'm pretty confident in those. Um, Famous last word, but but yeah, I'm, I'm not too. I mean, yeah, about when it. you talk about the tools, for sure. I mean, there's two views. There's, there's you know, the uh, Steve Randy Waldman view, which is that actually you don't need to unwind all that excess liquidity. You can just keep rolling it on and and slowly, slowly, you know, unwind it over time. Or you use like a floor system like IOER and you, and you commit to that. And yeah, sure. I think that works. All right. The the last question is is kind of a meta question from commenter MCSC who asks, are bloggers like Calculated Risk and others becoming more important than the traditional vehicles like the FT and the Wall Street Journal, or are the newspapers following the style of the bloggers? And this is an interesting question, one where I guess we have to be careful because we are bloggers who write for a newspaper or who write for a blog that's attached that's what to we have a newspaper. To the end, right? But, yeah, I mean, I, I guess my, my own view on this is, I guess, a, a sunny and optimistic one, which is that over the last half decade, what's actually happened, interestingly, is that a lot of blogger-like tendencies or qualities or whatever have kind of seeped into other parts of the newspaper. And I don't think we're unique in that sense in that you have journalists, you know, addressing people in the comments. You have journalists who are both writing for the newspaper and occasionally blogging. Um, those of us on Alphaville will occasionally write for the newspaper as well. 
And so I, I guess the lines are being blurred, but in a very good way. Yeah, it's a format evolution. I mean, it's multimedia. We're going multimedia on all fronts, and I think that's something that's been happening for the last, you know, five years. Yeah, and to which this podcast uh, has contributed. Guys, this has been fun. How, how many times do you think we can we can do these? Once a month? Once every few weeks? No, no hostages to fortune here. I would imagine um, once every X. Yeah, <laughs> we've got we've. We got this first one under our belt, at least. Um, anyways, thanks to everybody for listening. Again, if you want a time guide to this podcast, go to ft.com forward slash Alphaville, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. We're out. Bye. All right.